Welcome to Everyday Therapist. I'm Rich from the UK. And I'm Cody from the United States. Before we jump in, we just want to say that this podcast does not constitute therapeutic advice. Yeah, so let me introduce our guest for today. Um, Chanel and I uh, is have, have gone back a few years now. I think, Chanel, I was trying to think about this the other day. I think that we've probably known each other for about 11 or 12 years at this point. Mm-hmm. Uh, Chanel and I met uh, in our bachelor's program, both earning our bachelor's of social work, and then we both ended up working in child welfare together. Uh, Chanel ended up going back to school, uh, got her MBA, and then um, left child welfare for a bit and came back in, um, in again in a different role, went back to school again and got her master's of social work. And then uh, worked at the Pride Center for her internship, which we'll talk about a little bit. And then got through school, is now working at a hospital as a therapist. And uh, to my understanding, it, working on on your full licensure. Chanel, did I, did I get all that right? And also welcome. Welcome to the podcast. <laughs> yes, thank you. You got it all right. I've been a little bit all over the place. I think um, as I was thinking about it, that is what I liked about social work actually is just be having that variety of working different places. Um, but yeah, you got it all the way right, all the way back. I was trying to remember how long we've known each other too. So we met in intro to social work and just kind of uh, known each other ever since. That's right. I actually forget about that. So we had to take a intro to social work class before we could get into the social work program through through college and um i applied you know I, I feel like you followed the same path as me but i'm not sure i applied to get into the social work program and was declined my first uh my first go at it uh but it, they kind of have this weird like hey you didn't make it but we're going to put you in classes anyway and then you can apply again and because we think that you're as long as you keep going you'll make it the second time around so I had to apply again but I was already in some in some classes after that point is that is was that your path to Chanel yeah and to be honest that was pretty intimidating because I already had some people telling me don't be a social worker that's hard and so when I didn't get into the program I was like oh maybe I shouldn't you know I don't maybe Mm -hmm. I shouldn't be a social worker but they gave me the option to take like three or four classes and if you do well and if you get a little experience under your belt then maybe you have a better chance the next time so there was a little small group of us that hooked together and we were like let's figure out how to get into the program and luckily we all did i'm really curious about uh, why you got declined <laughs> <laughs> yes so there were a few reasons for me maybe cody can speak to his experience um i just didn't have enough experience i they wanted more volunteer hours so that you knew what you're getting into a little bit more life experience um and my i just was a little too general i was like oh i want to help people and they were like no that doesn't really cut it um we want you to be a little more invested have a bit more understanding about what a social worker means and so that's why they put us all in an intro class so that we actually knew what we were getting into. So that was me. I They needed a lot more volunteer hours from me. So I started doing everything I can. I worked at a local homeless shelter. I worked at the Rape Recovery Center. I did a lot of volunteer hours to try to get in. 
Yeah, what about you, Cody? What was your uh, excuse? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was kind of a warning shot of, are you sure this is what you want to do? Yeah. Uh, yeah. For, for me, it was similar. Yeah, I, um, I didn't have enough volunteer experience either or um, just in experience in working in social work fields in general. Like you and I have talked about, Rich, I, I came from the business world before that. And it's completely different and doesn't relate uh, in terms of what they're looking for to be accepted into the program. So, yeah, I I uh, did some time working at uh, the homeless shelter, um, reading books to, to kids and families at the homeless shelter. I also did a couple of internships at a refugee center uh, when, when families would come over as, as refugees. My job was to uh, help take them to job interviews, fill out job applications, get resumes ready. Um, I did a little bit with helping them to learn a little bit of English while they can and things like that. So I, I had to re really bolster that, that volunteer experience also. Sounds like both of you then did a real mix of um, different uh different things before was it was that during the when you were at school or was it before you got into school I'm sort of a, a little bit confused about that for me yes so I I had a little volunteer work it was pretty measly looking back that I had right. put on my original application I had to scrounge up hours um and so I applied and they were like, nope, you you need more. So I did a lot of hours while I was also in school. So it was pretty busy because I also had to work, right, to pay my bills. So I remember just feeling um, kind of thinned out for time. Like I, but I also there was a huge gr like growing period. So I really loved that time. I I changed who I was as a person just because of the the coursework was very informative and uh, new to me. It was stuff I hadn't heard of before. Um, and then also the volunteer work, just being right there with the people. Yeah, I'm interested as well. So you say it changed you as a person um, doing that doing that work. And that's, that, that's the journey I'm on at the moment. And I am a little, well, I, I was a little bit terrified. I'm less terrified of it now, and I'm more just accepting that things are, are going to change and I'm going to be sort of put through the mill a little bit. Um, so I'm really keen to hear other people's stories because I know that they've, they've referred to the level three course uh, here that I'm on as the divorce course. It's something that they always <laughs> bring up. And I'm like, oh, no, no, that's, that's a bit too much. And, and other sort of things... Um, but so far, you know, it's, it's, it's like a slow uh, introduction into personal development. And I'm actually quite excited to do that. So I'm interested. How, how was that for you, that whole process? Yeah. Um, like I say, it changed me. I think it really just opened my eyes. I became interested in social justice issues, uh, different cultures, different people, um, my understanding of basic things like poverty, oppression, substance abuse was altered. Um, just, and so, yeah, I wonder why they call it the divorce course. Is that because like people tend to pull away from their partners? Is that? I, think, I, I don't know. I get the impression that they, something that the tutor has said or a couple of different tutors I've heard talking is that you reevaluate all your relationships as you get to know yourself and how you interact with different people. Um, somebody put it like, 
she said, the people that are sat around your table now might not be sat around your table in a couple of years' time. I'm thinking, well, I hope they are because it's my wife and my children. But I, I, get, <laughs> I get, get the sentiment. I get the sentiment. And I, and I suppose even now with certain interactions that I have with people, it's not that my behavior has, has changed, but I've become a little bit, sorry, a little bit more tuned in to what's going on and how I'm interacting with somebody and, and whether they're actually giving me the time of day and do I actually need to, to, you know, be in this situation. I don't, I don't know if that makes sense, but it kind of, I think you use the word Chanel, it sort of like opens your eyes. Mm-hmm. It's funny, yeah. it's funny, Rich, because, um, the way that they're describing that course for you is that it does open your eyes. I, I'm wondering if this is same for you, Chanel. My opening was during our divide. Wow, our diversity course with Irene Oda, and mm-hmm. that was a different diversity course than I've ever been a part of. And uh, as somebody who grew up in the environment that I grew up in. Uh, and who generally looks like me and just naturally um, has all of these privileges built in, it opened my eyes and challenged me in so many ways that I was unprepared for. And I did, as I went through that course, I did start changing my friendships and I stopped hanging out with people that I had grown up with and I could no longer... I don't, this is kind of harsh, but I could no longer find myself associating with them because I just felt like I had seen certain things and I had started believing in different things and we no longer could relate. And that was a really hard period of time for me. I'm wondering if if you experienced anything the same, Chanel. Absolutely. I think it really forced me to prioritize uh, who I spent my time with. Um, what things seemed trivial. And I I even was part of the problem. I was pushing people's boundaries with everything I was learning. You know, I was pushing my yes. new politics on people. I was pushing my new ideals. And I think, you know, they weren't ready either. And so um, that was part of it. And so, but actually on the flip side though, it really taught me how to communicate better, um, to be a better listener and to ask people more about their story, where they're coming from. So I grew closer to my family, my partner, um, my siblings, like people who I wanted to keep around who I really prioritized because it made me um, slow down a little and reevaluate what I once believed. I think that's probably the best way to put it is it made me not just be empathetic towards the populations I was w- working with, but also people in my life. Oh, like what's going on in, in their head and their experiences? What life experiences have they gone through that shapes them? So just asking them more about their story, their lives, what's important to them actually made it um, made me get through that period. That's nice. That's a really positive thing to hear. Mm-hmm. Uh, something I've, I've noticed with my not so much my immediate family, but my extended family. Um, This isn't really to do with boundaries as such, but I've found that when I'm in a social situation with them, I'm actually a little bit more confident in not talking all the time because Mm -hmm. that's definitely come from being on... It's not so much as, you know, it's good to listen and not to talk. It's more just that I don't have to fill in all the gaps and... It's not my job to rescue the, the, the situation or the social situation or, or whatever it is. 
and that's been um a, a bit of a revelation and quite freeing actually to go yeah it's not just me there's a whole family here and we we're all responsible for communicating so that's that's been nice yeah yeah that that's listening skill definitely comes into play the more you get into this this therapy world but um Rich, be careful because uh, I need you to help carry us, continue to carry us in the conversation realm. So we both can't sit here quietly. <laughs> yeah. it, it could be like a mindfulness episode. Yeah, we'll just have to change directions. <laughs> uh, hey, Chanel, I want to back up just a little bit. Um, I'm, I'm curious as to what led you to become a social worker. Uh, you also mentioned that as you were trying to apply to get into school, people were warning you to not become a social worker. So I, I'm curious about what led you to that route and then what kept you going despite those warnings? That's a good question. So in the beginning, I was like 20. I took a little break from school. I got my generals done. Um, but I really didn't know what I wanted to do for my major. So I was working different jobs and I worked as a teacher's aide at a school because I thought maybe I should be a teacher. And while I was there, a student disclosed some things to me and I went to my boss and they were like, oh, we'll let the school social worker talk to the student. Um, from now on, you know, kind of stick to the, your curriculum. And I was really taken aback. I had not heard of a school social worker and I really wanted to help this kiddo. I just felt like maybe I had more to offer or maybe there was more um, passion in that kind of job you know, that I, I just wasn't really feeling in my current job. And I also felt like teaching was really hard, to be honest. <laughs> I was like, oh, this is really hard. Um, and so I, I looked it up. I was like, what is a social worker? And I went to the University of Utah. I went and met with a counselor there that helps you look at different majors. And they gave me a bunch of pamphlets, I remember. And so I applied for the social work program. And the people that warned me about it, I think they just heard the typical things about low pay, um, stress, uh, burnout. And so they were worried about me, you know, uh, they loved me. Like, I don't know if that's the right path. Maybe there's other jobs that you'd be good at. I think they saw that I liked a variety of things. And so maybe I had potential to go somewhere else. I wasn't yet decided. Um, so what pushed me through it is I read a bunch of books, actually, and I did some meditation. Um, and I really tried to listen to my intuition, which was new for me. Hmm. And I just thought I, uh, it ultimately came down to if I'm going to work somewhere for 40 hours a week, I want to do something I think's cool or interesting or different or important to me, whatever that is. And to me at the time, it was social work. So I I went for it. And that that's I love that. And so once you graduated, um, or even maybe while you were in school, you, you mentioned a few places that you volunteered. Uh, maybe just tell us a little bit about some of those places that you volunteered and, and maybe even where you worked after you graduated and what that was like. You mentioned that high stress, low pay. Like, what was it like doing that volunteer work and working, finding yourself all of a sudden uh, down this path that you were going down? Yeah. So, I was volunteering at the Rape Recovery Center. Um, it was the training for that was called a victim's advocate. So, I went through this 40 hour training and then I was able to answer phone calls, like crisis calls for uh, victims of sexual assault or 
their family members that need read it, need resources. So I would guide them through that. And then um, my boss there, like volunteer boss, it's kind of funny, uh, recommended I become on the hospital response team. And that actually paid. It was very low pay, um, but it was really interesting. And I really enjoyed it because we'd be on call. We'd get a call in the middle of the night and we would go meet a survivor at the hospital and we'd sit with them during an exam. And I really liked that. I really learned some skills like listening, validating, advocating. I learned a lot about laws because we often worked with the police, the the nurse. And so I liked the team building of that job a lot um, and meeting a variety of people because we drove all over different hospitals in the whole valley. Um, and then what other things did I do? So then my practicum was at a refugee center, which was good because I wanted something different. I wanted something unique. And so I kind of did similar things that you did, Cody, which was helping them uh, apply for uh, services, helping them apply for citizenship. I remember taking a citizenship practice test with one of them and not even knowing some of the answers myself to become an American (laughs) citizen. And I was a little embarrassed. (laughs) Um, So that was really fun. We worked with some of the kids there. Um, just keeping them busy, like an after-school program. So that was a really good variety because I worked with, like from kids to adults doing different programs, running groups. And that's what I wanted. I I applied for that kind of practicum where it offered variety from what I was doing in my other job. Um, the money aspect, yeah, I was super broke during that time because <laughs> uh, that was my only income. I was living off student loans and living at my parents' house. So in my early 20s and that wasn't really like a bad thing but i you know wished i had money for my own place so yeah i'm trying to think make sure i answered all your questions in that one oh i just i'm interested because obviously we, we've not met each other before so it sounds mm-hmm. like you in these in these voluntary settings with a, a mixture of uh different people um do you also do one-on-one therapy now is that is that where you're at at the moment So I did at the Utah Pride Center. That's where I did my practicum for uh, my master's degree. And I I did that. And I also applied for a hospital one. I wanted to see what I liked. So right now I actually don't do one-on-one therapy, but I did the whole time I was getting my master's. Okay. Okay. And Mm -hmm. did you like that? That's something you enjoyed, was it? I did, actually. I I felt a huge responsibility, though, to be honest. Um, And I think I would go back to doing one-on-one individual therapy if I felt like it was the right time in my Mm -hmm. life. Uh, Right now, I have two little ones that take up a lot of my energy. So that's when I... So the the job I work at now is really nice because it's a crisis. So I do telecrisis work. So I do evaluations to see if someone needs to be admitted inpatient for psychiatric reasons and so i really like that because i can just pick up shifts here and there it's really random like oh my weekend's free i can pick up a shift Um, flexible with with family mm -hmm. but i did enjoy therapy i yeah i would have several clients at the rape recovery center or sorry at the pride utah pride center and i really Hmm. liked that and was that like um person-centered therapy so listening therapy or, or did you bring anything like cbt into it or anything yeah, definitely integrated with some person-centered yeah. humanist, and um, and then CBT for sure. We used a lot of that. Yeah. Do you think this is a question to both of you? Really, do you think we we all the people getting into the therapy 
I hate, I hate using the word industry. Is there a better word than industry? Field. field. We use field. Field. Yeah. People getting into the field. Do you think most people getting into the field have a a sort of natural tendency towards certain types of therapy? So for me, I feel currently that uh, person-centered therapy is going to suit me more. Um, you know, I hear about CBT and we had Sarah on last week talking about EMDR um, and some other things. But for me, um, that, that sort of have like an affiliation with that person-centered therapy. I've actually read, I've actually read one book, Cody, you'll be pleased to know. <laughs> Nobody can see it because it's a world really? podcast. Yes, do you know this book? Um, I, I do not. Book. Well, you've got to read this. This is the book for, for therapy. Okay. So this is by a guy, an American, Carl Rogers, who I, I'm guessing you've heard of Carl Rogers. No? Blank faces. Yes. <laughs> I've heard of Carl, Carl Rogers, yeah. Okay, right. Well, I, I think, I mean, this book is, is brilliant. It was actually quite difficult to read, um, but his whole ethos was, um, I'm going to stuff this up now, but basically creating a space for somebody to come in and talk and having the courage to sort of go to the depths of despair with them or whatever they're going through, um, really practicing that empathy to it, to its full extent. So whatever they've done, wherever they are, or wherever they've been in their lives, is really uh, sitting there with them. And it's this idea or this sort of belief that everybody wants to do good or they want to move towards a better life and away from either terrible stuff that's happened to them or, or, you know, things from the past. And by not being an expert and just actually opening up a space and being with them, you'll help somebody move towards that. And I've, I've sounded that I've made that sound way more hippie than it actually is. It's actually <laughs> exactly like a, you know, he's a psychiatrist and, and there's lots of studies that, that sort of say that, um, it's helpful for a lot of things. So that's my natural tendency, but I just, would you have had one of those, Chanel, when you were studying? Was there anything that really jumped out for you that you liked? I absolutely used person-centered a lot. I, I like that it's more of like a relationship. The person is their own, um, what is it, expert on their life. Yes, yes. And so yeah. it's a working relationship. And so that's what I would do a lot, get to know them, ask questions. And then when I was creating a therapeutic plan, I would have them agree to it. You know, this, these are your goals. What would you like us to work on? And then checking in on those regularly. Are you getting out of this what you want? Um, where, you know, how are you feeling? Where are we at? Just uh, that's kind of how I used it. And then I, I used cognitive behavioral therapy integrated into that for techniques that I personally liked, like mindfulness, um, getting in touch with your feelings, teaching them about different feelings, because that's where... I just noticed a lot of people were like, I don't know how I feel. I just don't feel right. And so just really diving into that, like, let's name our feelings and get, you know, get to the bottom of that. Mm. But I that's love person-centered. Yeah, yeah. That, that There's something else that's come up for me recently, and we're not, we're not taught about mindfulness yet at college, but it's something that I, that I try and practice and, and think about. And just that whole self-awareness thing, um, trying to like name different emotions that I might be feeling or I might be experiencing and, and then also um, feeling where they are in my body, which is a, a new thing for me. 
um, you know, so, so like today, I, I, I've been down at our Christmas work, Christmas party down to the south of London um, last night and then had to get a train back this morning and it was absolutely rammed. I had to stand on this train for two and a half hours and it was it was not a nice situation. And I kind of tried to do the body scan thing. I actually found, found myself nearly falling asleep whilst doing the body <laughs> scan. And I was, <laughs> was going to topple over uh, to snap back. But I could <laughs> definitely feel like at the top of... Uh, my stomach, like a, a tightness, and I was just, and I was just like, it's because I don't want to be um, trapped in this train. So yeah, so that's thing for me, just a bit more self awareness. Yeah, I absolutely use that on myself a lot, <laughs> like a, a, a body scan, or sometimes even just taking a huge breath. I will be in my head, overwhelmed. I got all these things I want to do or get to today, and I just take a huge breath, come back, you know and check where where am I feeling tension just slow down mm. yeah the mindfulness one's really interesting and again we were discussing this with Sarah the other day who came on and she's a CBT expert EMDR but she also does I think she does some mindfulness training as well and I was saying that at the moment I when I do it my brain is just too busy and it's like I don't I don't want to do it and even five minutes feels like far too long to sit there and she, I think she said something like, you know, when you're in that state, that is when you need it most. And absolutely, you should sort of keep doing it and, and keep doing that rep in your brain. But I think, it, I don't know whether it's just this time of year, everything's so busy, but I find it uh, extremely difficult to do that. There's Rich, you saying that there's this really good um, TED Talk on, on YouTube. Um, I think it's called Don't Try to Be Mindful. Oh, right. um, and the 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 premise behind it is um, that we'll get better at it the more we practice just in in regular everyday situations. Instead of we all we're all busy, we're all running a million miles an hour, and it's hard to try to dedicate time to practice that skill. Um, so the the more we can find time to do it just in our everyday life, the better we'll get at it, such as like when you're taking a shower, um, just try to focus on what it feels like to have, you know, the warm water on your face. Or yeah. um, if you're, you know, cooking a meal, just what it feels like to um, maybe feel the steam uh, of whatever, uh, you know, whatever you're cooking or something like that and practice moments like that. And and you you had said, that when you stop, you have so many thoughts running through your head and it feels like five minutes is, is too long. And it, it kind of wraps up with this really, um, really great, uh, really great idea that basically says, um, when we start something, it, it's naturally going to feel uncomfortable. So for instance, if you say, I'm going to be healthier and today I'm going to take the stairs by the time you get it to the top of the stairs, you're heavy breathing, you feel like crap, you, you're sweaty. You don't get to the top of the stairs and say, wow, I really suck, suck at this. I'm never going to do it again. I guess maybe you say that, but ideally you're going to get to a place where you say, oh, wow, that was really hard. I probably need to do it more often. And I think that's the same idea with the mindfulness. Yeah, I like that. I, I think I'd, I definitely need to to do some some more practice. Something. I mean, this is kind of irrelevant to this discussion in a way, but I haven't been out. One of the things I do a lot of is cycling. So I go out two or three times a week, and I'm out on my bike for two or three hours um, each uh, session. And it's funny because 
I kind of know it does me good, but I don't really know on a day-to-day basis that it's doing me good. But since I've stopped doing it, I think my mind is a lot busier. Um, and that's just been down to weather and, you know, darker evenings and stuff like that. So, you know, we say this pretty much every podcast, don't we? But you do need to get out there and do these things, get out in nature, do some exercise and some mindfulness. And um, Chanel, is that something that you do on a day-to-day business, a day-to-day basis? Do you have things like that that you do? Yeah, I do. I listen to different podcasts, read different books that... Um tell me different kinds to try i'm very similar to you i can't just sit and meditate quietly for five minutes (laughs) i'm not that kind of uh, mindful person i need to tie it to something like going for a walk and noticing the different colors of green in the trees or like cody said slowing down when i cook and like feeling the texture of the foods or smelling the foods um so i tie it to my body just to get out of my head so I try to use different senses. And then I, I really like guided meditation uh, that focus on like tension here in my neck where, you know, just like focusing on different things. So one I really love is 10% Happier. Uh, that's a great podcast. He has a lot of different people on that um, have been authors of books. And so if I really like the interview, I'll go check out the book and get into that and see what and then he also has different people on that do like seven minute guided meditations for a stressful time you know or and so that's what i will do i'll just go check out one here there i do it mostly daily before bed that's really when my mind kicks up and i think of oh things i did today that were embarrassing or silly or and then all the things i need to do tomorrow so that just helps tell my mind, okay, let's meditate. Let's calm down. It's going to be all right. <laughs> let's go to bed. Like that's really yeah. what I need is sleep. So yeah. Interesting. I've, I've never tried to, to, to do it before I go to bed. It's usually the morning that I try. Perhaps that's it. Perhaps I should change that because sometimes I sit there for like three or four minutes and I'm, I'm battling, battling, battling. And in the end, I'm just like, nah, screw it. I'm going to go and get on with whatever <laughs> all these things are that I feel like I need to do. But, you know, that probably has a, a, a purpose as well, doesn't it? It's a way of centering yourself perhaps and looking at what you've got to tackle that day. I don't know. Yeah, I would think the experts would say probably morning is best or do it when you can, just like exercise, you know, do yeah. it when you can that fits into your day. And get yeah. into a routine that works for you. Yeah. I know you do it, don't you, Cody, when you're walking your dog? Yeah, mine, mine's in the morning. Um, I would like to do it in the afternoon because I have to take my dog on an afternoon walk as well. But um, it's a little bit harder in the afternoon. There's there's more people out and about. And it's just there's a lot going on. So it's not quite as quite as calm out there. Like I'm just trying to watch for other dogs, watch for other people in cars. There's just a lot more going on on my walk. And so, yeah, morning is, is my preferred time. And then, um, and then just, you know, the regular routine of, of families at night, you know, trying to get the kids all settled in and make sure that everything's wrapped up for the night. And, and by the time I'm, I'm finally able to, uh, to call it a night, it, I have no energy left for, for five minutes of mindfulness. I, I would try it and be asleep within one. So that probably doesn't work very well for me. That's good. And this has just popped into my head. Chanel, do you, cause you've got two young children, is that right? Mm-hmm. Um, do you, uh, inflict any mindfulness stuff on them? You know, do you say, oh. no, yeah. Do you advise them to take some deep breaths and get themselves centered? I, I've tried it a little bit with my children and they're, they're not interested. So. 
Yes, I laughed because my poor two-year-old, I was like, she already is going to be doing like men. <laughs> so we do like a breathe in, breathe out if she's about to explode or have her little toddler moment of, you know, she hasn't been able to self-regulate. And so um, we teach her breathing and it's really cute because she'll, you know, be crying and trying to breathe. And But it really hit me. Um, a few weeks ago, I was worked up about something and she's like, mama, you need to take a deep breath. <laughs> and I was like, you know, you're right. That sounds really nice. And so we sat down together and took some deep breathing. Um, I have a friend that's a therapist for children and she taught me to like pretend with the kids to have a cup of hot cocoa and you sm um, smell the hot cocoa and then you blow it to cool it down. <sighs> And mm. it helps kids have that visual. So now that it's getting cooler, we've been using a hot cocoa kind of reference yeah. to help or metaphor. Yeah. That's the only oh, thing, though. I, I try not to do too much with her because I'm like, oh, I don't want to, you know, push my ideas on her too much. Yeah, I know. But it's nice. It's nice that you can build these little things. I mean, my children are older, so they're not going to listen to anything I say. So, yeah. So sidebar on that, uh, while, while we're talking about that, Rich, you and I did a parenting episode a little while ago, and I don't... Oh, no, I didn't, I, I, <laughs> <laughs> it hasn't released yet, but it, but it will soon. Um, <clears throat> I, My daughter and I were having a rough couple of days, just a few, a few days back, and you know she's, she's 13 right now. And so um, anything that my wife or I suggest is just not a good idea apparently <laughs> apparently we just don't have any good ideas and we're all, me and her are overly dramatic somehow um anyway so in in the midst of these this couple of days i decided to just sort of off the wall just sort of be funny and just say you know as a therapist here's what i here's what i think and oh boy did my daughter make that backfire on me you're always <laughs> you're not my therapist you're my dad you're always trying to be my therapist and I've worked really, really hard to make sure that I keep that boundary, but I, I let, I let a little joke out for once, and man, she let me have it. So, so <laughs> that's what you got coming eventually, Chanel. I'm not looking forward to it when I, I struggle with like the, yeah, the little tantrums or the food all over the house or um, just little things. I'm like, but they're not teenagers yet, so it's okay. <laughs> Like I got this. <laughs> I was a terrible yeah. teenager, so I do worry that it's going to come back at me. <laughs> I wasn't the best teenager, but my children—well, all my children are teenagers, and they've actually been—they've actually been really good. So I wouldn't worry. I think it'll be fine. Yeah, <laughs> I think Cody too. Like, can you even do anything right with a teen kid? Like, sometimes you just—you get—they got to figure stuff out, right? They got to figure it out on their own. <laughs> Yeah, we haven't found the right thing yet, so that's 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 a good perspective. Um, Chanel, I before we move too far off of like just your job and and your volunteering and stuff, um, those those things that you did with the Rape Recovery Center, um, trying to run um, individual sessions at the Pride Center, and even now doing assessments at at the hospital and, and maybe hospitalizing people for psychiatric needs. I imagine that is fairly stressful. I imagine that that's sometimes feels like a, a difficult place to be in. What, what is that like for you? Yeah, there are days that I definitely feel, I feel it. I feel the weight of just how hard life can be in general for people as collective, you know, just 
the weight of the sadness of stories. Sometimes I hear just the struggles of there not being enough resources. Um, that's really hard. So for me, I have luckily found things that work. I, I make sure to keep my glass full. Um, I used to think, oh, when it gets empty, I need to refill it. It's actually opposite. You keep it full always. And that way, mm. if something happens, you just off a little bit, but I can feel it. Some days I'm grouchy. That's kind of what secondary trauma will look like for me. Or, um, I don't want to go outside. I don't want to see people. I just kind of isolate. And so I've learned a lot of through time, cause I've been doing this now, you know, over 10 years, what works for me. So I have different things I, I love. Honestly, the best way to put it is to do things you love. Um, I watch funny shows. I listen to podcasts that enlighten me, that, you know, inspire me. Uh, I create, I like to paint color with my daughter. Um, I love to bake. I like to find new recipes. I love getting outside. Like if I'm having a rough day, I'm like, oh, you know what? I could really use some sunshine on my face. So even if I can't make it like go for a walk, I don't have time for a walk. I just go sit outside and drink tea. Just feel that fresh air. Um, another big one is support systems. That's probably the biggest thing I tell people. Uh, who can you call that will make you laugh or just listen to you cry? Uh, who can you meet up for lunch? Uh, so have a variety of people that are there for you that you can talk to about different things. And with my job, I keep a lot to myself because of the nature of what I do just to protect people, um, to protect the people I work with. So I keep things very vague. I'll just, you know, if I've had a really rough day, I'll just sit down with my husband and say, Ooh, today was hard. I could use a hug. Um, mm. and I won't really get into it. So if I do need to process it, I write it down and that movement helps your brain, uh, process the information. So just journaling it. And in the front of my journal, this is something that a therapist told me. So I have been to therapy. We can get into that in a minute. Is in the very from beginning of my journal, it says, this is difficult information that I am processing. Please do mm. not read it. Um, it. And I don't put any names, any, any identifying information in it. I just will put what it was, maybe what it triggered. And, you know, and then I, I attach something positive to it. That's something else that really helps. So I'll say, oh, this was a really hard situation. I am going to send that person good thoughts that they'll get through this time. And then I try to picture them in a, in a better moment. Mm. And that really, really helps. Um, and it, it's somewhere that people can't get to. Like, they, you know, my husband probably could if he dug around. But I've showed it to him. I'm like, this, you don't really want to read this. <laughs> um, <laughs> it is mine for my eyes only. And it's somewhere up high. My kids can, I mean, they can't read anyway. But... And then yeah. I think once it's full, I'll dispose of it or something. I haven't figured that out yet, but that helps if, sorry, you can probably hear, I don't know if you can cut that out. I'm like right below the <laughs> laundry. <worry>. Okay. <laughs> My yeah, office we, is right below our wash machine. <laughs> we try to be as, as little professional as possible. <laughs> cool. I love it. I'm a very right? casual person, so I love it. Um, so yeah, there's, there's a couple I covered of things a lot. That um that come across for me from from listening to you speak so you're so you, you know we were talking about mindfulness and it sounds like you do 
on a day-to-day basis with your work, you are a very mindful person and, and the, the journaling and the thinking about a client, writing it down, adding a positive thought. That's, that's really nice. I think that that's quite inspiring to me because this is something that I wonder about how I'm going to deal with that side of things once I start working in the field, not the industry. And um, I another thing as well that just... This is more perhaps a question for Cody, which which jumped out at me is when you're talking about support networks and going for lunch with a friend or ringing a friend, that type of thing. I'm guessing that men, I know this is a stereotype, are probably not as good as women at, at reaching out to people if they need help. Cody. <laughs> <laughs> calling on you well, I'm, not, um, I'm not you're not I'm just I'm calling you out well, you're I'm, asking I'm, for I'm, Cody's opinion I'm calling out men not you specifically yeah no it's accurate it's accurate and um, even though I am a therapist and even though we you and I do have a mental health podcast trying to promote discussions around that it's okay to have mental health conversations um I probably don't do it as much as I would like to, or as, as much as um, sometimes I should. Um, I have certain people that that I can, right? Like my wife, I can definitely talk about things with my wife, um, or maybe a couple of friends here and there um, that I can say things to. But there's definitely there's definitely friendships that I have that I feel like are really close and loving and wonderful friendships that I probably wouldn't have a mental health conversation with. Um, not because I don't value them. And I hope they value me, but it's just because I don't know that maybe they're in a place where we could be that vulnerable with each other or um, that they would be ready to have a, have a discussion and, and maybe how they would hold that information. So I think in terms of finding that support network, identifying who you can have that conversation with is extremely important because you need that support. When, when you are vulnerable, you need that support. Um, but as as a male, it definitely would benefit to to grow it, to expound on it for sure. Mm. I know because men are notoriously bad at talking to people about their problems, which uh, obviously we've mentioned that dozens of times on this podcast. But so I think perhaps if you are a man that struggles to talk about your problems, there is this journaling thing and mindfulness, and then also having therapy, isn't there? Just you don't have to have something catastrophically wrong to go to therapy which is another thing that i guess we we kind of try and promote on this podcast although i've never had therapy myself yet but I, i'm i'm learning that i think i need it a lot <laughs> <laughs> well i think it, we've talked about this i think everybody can benefit from it whether it's something big or just a daily uh, not maybe not daily check-ins but regular check-ins right just to just to touch base see how you're doing so um i i rich you're you're schooling promotes it right like it's almost it's required for you guys to go to counseling to in order to graduate yeah so once you've done um well one of the routes to become a counselor we call it counselor here chanel but psychotherapist or or therapist mm. um for people in america listening um but when you do your level four course you have to go to to therapy for the duration or at least 12 months of, of therapy um, and then something that's different over here than the US is that once you are a qualified therapist, if you're the member of one of these associations, you have to have regular supervision. I think it's uh, at least once a month 
um, and it's a requirement. So you're basically always in some sort of therapy if you're working mm. as a therapist. That's wonderful, yeah. actually. I think that's a really wonderful benefit that you'll learn a lot from. Yeah. 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 I'm really surprised that it's not the case in the US because everything else is so more, you know, it's much more stringent in the US than it is in the UK. Um, for example, anyone can call themselves a therapist here. Yeah. There is that, there is that difference. And I think it's a big difference. Yeah. I think to my, to my knowledge, I have heard there might be some programs here that require, um, people okay. in school to go through therapy. I, I don't know of, of them. And in my experience, any, anybody that I've talked to didn't have to go through therapy in order to graduate. Um, and then our supervision, once we get our full licensure, once we get our, our hours in, our practice hours in, our supervision also goes away. So um, mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's time limited that way. Oh, so we did do practice therapy on each other. I'm sure Cody mm -hmm. might recall this where um, like you asked what type of therapy I prefer. So we would learn the different types of therapy and then we'd practice those ones on a different uh on a student so we'd be like assigned a different colleague to practice on so that was kind of interesting because we had a fake scenario i so i didn't love that um but yeah so <laughs> i think it would be really helpful though like supervision is very helpful yeah chanel you mentioned um you mentioned earlier that that you've gone to therapy yourself um, what what's mm -hmm. your experience been like and and would you be comfortable sharing some of that yeah absolutely so i had just a like couple stressful cases at work and i also had a loved one that was going through a mental health crisis so the compound of that um just was very overwhelming for me so I, and I think this is important for like any, like any listeners that anyone can go. It can just be day to day anxiety because, um, my, that's what my symptoms were. I was, I had like brain fog. I had trouble sleeping. I, uh, just felt so unlike myself. I think that's probably the best way to put it. And I didn't know what it was. I just was like, I need to talk to someone I'm feeling stressed i can't stop thinking about what happened to my loved one and work is just too much right now and i am very fortunate that my work had a free program and they have their number all over the building and as someone who recommends therapy i even struggled going to be honest i would rip off the phone number um from the paper because it was like little numbers old school i'd stick it in my purse and i it would leave it there and then I would make a, I would make an appointment and then I'd cancel. <laughs> but I finally had, it just, I, it just built up where I actually missed an appointment for work that I had never done. I just completely forgot about an appointment. And I was like, yeah, this brain fog is too much. I'm, I'm not functioning anymore. So I went in, I just unloaded on my poor therapist, um, everything. I was crying and she was like, you have anxiety. This, and I was like, oh, I really, like, I just thought I was stressed. Um, and that was an eye opener for me because I thought anxiety was like, you know, panic attacks, fidgeting, um, overthinking. So my, my symptoms, what I thought didn't correlate, but now of course, looking back, I'm like, oh yes, 
these are anxiety symptoms. And, and I felt silly going. I think that's also really important for listeners to go. I just, on the drive over there, I was like in my head telling myself, okay, let's create a narrative of why you need to be here so that this person doesn't think you're wasting their time. Um, and so I think that's really important for therapists to know, or even listeners, like, it was so helpful to have someone that didn't know me, didn't know my situation, wasn't tied to my work performance, um, just hear it all. Can I, can I pause you for a second? Because yeah. I think that's such a good point. You're basically saying that despite the fact that you didn't feel like yourself and that you were stressed out and not sleeping and just having a really, really difficult time, you still felt like you had to have more in order for your therapist to to think that it was important enough for you to come in. Yes, I did. I thought I needed a trauma or a major problem that was affecting me day to day, which it was, but not to the extent that I imagined I needed to see a therapist. I, um, you know, I just really didn't picture it. Like I was functioning enough in my head, you know, like I'm fine or I was coping enough, but it really wasn't enough. Um, so yeah, on the drive over, I was just re- going over my story. Oh, what am I going to tell this person so that they don't think, oh, you know, this poor, just stressed out girl. Um, so I think that's part of it, like an esteem, self-esteem issue. Um, some people that might not go, they just feel maybe like, <laughs> you know, their, their feelings are not valid because they haven't gone through something major or um, you know, I thought maybe I needed a big physical thing, like a car accident or, you know, just anything in my head. It just wasn't enough. Yeah, that's probably the best way to put it. And I, um, just before about five minutes ago when we were talking and I said, one of the things that I'm learning is that, you know, I probably need to, to go to therapy and I'd benefit from it. And as I said it, I had a sort of feeling through my body, like it's like almost a little bit fraudulent because... You know, I had that sort of secondary voice in my head, sort of going, "We, you know, you don't need it. There's nothing. There's nothing wrong with you." So I kind of felt a little bit silly about it. So it's that whole stigma thing again. And you saying you felt like you didn't have a sort of big enough problem as such. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, the second voice I call my inner voice. Oh, it was just really strong. It was like, just you know, turn around and go do some breathing techniques. You know, <laughs> like you got this. Um, or like maybe just access to resources. I was like, I could figure this out on my own. I think some people have that mentality too of, you know, you're smart, which is true. People are smart. They can figure it out. And we're often taught that like to be independent and tough. And so um, that's where I was coming from. And there was a stigma of, oh yeah, I'm going to be silly. Silly is probably the best way to put it, that they're not going to take me seriously or my problems aren't going to be big enough to warrant the the resource yeah i just really appreciate sharing that because um i really think that that's one of the hardest things about people wanting to engage in mental health conversations is they don't feel like whatever they're going through is bad enough or they'll justify it by saying well so and so has it worse or you know it could be worse um and i just i just i just i appreciate you letting me focus on that for a minute because i just think that is so huge and it's so important to help everybody recognize that almost everybody feels the same way. That no mm-hmm. matter what they're going through, it, 
it's enough to to be okay to talk to somebody. And we're all going to question it. We're all going to tell ourselves that somewhere along the lines, if I am not okay, then I'm not strong enough. And that's just not true. And so I, I appreciate you being open to sharing that piece. Thank you. Is this something that you've continued with? Yeah, it has. Um, so my work provided um, like six free sessions and they were generous to give me more. They were like, you know, this is really, that's just kind of like a broad um, guide of what we're allowed to do. And then after I had my first baby, it just hit again. Um, I would call it postpartum anxiety. Uh, and I even gave that feedback to like when you, I don't know if you know you guys know this, but when you go for your checkup as a woman after you have the baby, you do a postpartum depression checklist of, oh, you're feeling blue. Have you been crying a lot? Have you been feeling like you want to harm someone or something or even your child? And I gave that feedback was like, I don't feel any of this. I don't feel depressed. I don't feel harmful. Um, I'm really anxious, like postpartum anxiety. So that was a, it just kind of kicked back in after that. Um, so I have, I go as a needs basis. Just if I feel like something's coming up again, I call and I make an appointment. Just like, so I've gone a few times. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I like that. So like the top up, I think you said you um, have your glass uh, continuously topped up. Mm -hmm. uh, but that's a similar sort of thing, but the therapy version of it, I guess, isn't it? Just paying a visit now and again. Yeah, like if I'm starting to feel that dip again, I'm like, okay, it might be time before it takes a hold of me again and I feel like I did before where I wasn't sleeping or I, I just felt so foggy, you know. That's a bit of a revelation to me that you could do it like that because I can think of loads of times in my life where if I had that relationship with a therapist so it wasn't such a huge um, jump to, to get in touch with somebody. You know, I already had that relationship and I could just think, actually, yeah, I'm, I'm feeling not so great at the moment. I'm going to go and do a couple of sessions and just try and sort myself out a little bit. I think that'd be, be really great, actually. Mm -hmm. I loved it. I'm wondering if Chanel, your your ongoing mindfulness practices that you that you've talked about that you do. I'm wondering if that's what helps you recognize. Oh, maybe this is a time for me to go back in. Yes, yes, and um, I. I definitely think so. I think, you know, I, I do a check-in. Like if I am starting to feel really anxious, I will look over the week and see, oh, maybe what did I miss this week? You know, have I not been eating enough or because um, I've been so stressed, overwhelmed? Have I been drinking enough? Have I been getting outside? Have I called a friend? You know, like I kind of go through my checklist of coping skills that I've learned through time and through therapy. And I, I try to shift those, like, oh, I need to make a little more time for these, you know, something's going on, so I need to make a little more time for this. And then if I am making time and I'm still feeling that way, I would, that's when I would call a therapist. If I'm still using my skills, but, and my mindfulness practices, but I'm still feeling off, then I would call a ther my call therapist and make an appointment. I can really relate to that as well. Um, even though I don't have therapy at the moment, if I'm not in a good place, I, I go through that checklist. You know, am I getting out for a, a walk, getting sunlight in my eyes, eating properly, getting to bed on time? And I think as long as I'm doing that, 
Um, or rather, if I'm doing that and things get worse, then I know I've got a problem, but I'll just keep doing those things for now. And another thing that all this reminds me of where it would have been good to have had a therapist was um, we moved into this house that I'm sat in now about five years ago. And it was really, I know house moves are stressful. They're supposed to be one of the most stressful things that you can do. Um, but it was a really tricky purchase and, uh, and lots of problems with the solicitors and the, the buyers. And, and I won't go into it, but it was like, it was an absolute battle to make the, the sale go through and to sell my house. And so I, I accepted that I, f- I felt really, really anxious about it, you know, almost to the point where it was um, not tolerable, let's say. But I thought if I can just get to the finish line and get into this house, it'll be all okay. Um, So eventually moving day came, got everything in, got everybody settled. And then I I thought I was going to breathe a huge sigh of relief and all my uh, troubles would sort of dissipate. And I still had this knot in my stomach Mm -hmm. the next day and the day after three days after, a week after. I remember actually having a conversation. My parents came to visit and and they said, you know, how's everything going? I said, everything's going well, technically, as in we're here, all the legal side sorted out. I said, but I've got this massive feeling of anxiety and it's it's just not shifting. And it's actually my mum said, you know, like, um, see how it goes over the next few weeks and if it hasn't shifted you should probably go and get some help and luckily it, it did and then things settled down but that would have been a great time for me to to have gone and spoken to somebody mm-hmm. that is that's a perfect example right because it's not a huge event like trauma a traumatic event that we may maybe typically classify but to you it was a big stressful situation that caused anxiety that lingered and I think people maybe wouldn't be able to have a couple weeks maybe it would interfere with their day-to-day life and it wouldn't settle um and looking back you're like maybe I would have really benefited from that because what if something happens again and your anxiety comes back right Mm. Mm. yeah and and I remember we were sort of talking about not not imposter syndrome, but that feeling like it's not bad enough. Um, and maybe it was, and maybe it wasn't. But I remember trying to speak to people, well, not not trying to speak to people to get help, but mentioning, oh, I'm really anxious about this house move and things like that. And it's almost like, well, yeah, of course you are. <laughs> it's like a, mm. a house. Nobody was going to engage in, in that conversation. Um, and you're thinking... Yeah, and, and that's quite isolating, isn't it? Because you're thinking, actually, I'm really struggling with this. And you mention it sort of um, in loose terms, I guess, to people. And it's like nobody's picking up on it. Um, mm-hmm. and, and you can't expect people to do that because everyone's got their own things going on and, and they're not therapists. So, But I just think it's a really good message for people out there uh, who are listening to this is... Um, you know, perhaps even if you haven't got any major problems at the moment, perhaps you should get to know a therapist in, in, in case you do. Mm-hmm. In, I don't know. And that's why I told Cody I was totally comfortable talking about this because, um, yeah, even I miss cues of people maybe needing more, needing more from me. And um, and so just trying to pay a little more attention, you know, and just get the help you need, really. Like if you if you feel like you could talk to someone just go for it like take care of yourself like it's yeah. prioritize yourself you're worth it yeah 
Chanel, I'm, I'm, I'm wondering, and you and I talked a little bit before, so I, ho- I hope this is still okay. Um, you mentioned a family member that was going mm-hmm. through some, some mental health struggles. Um, if you're still okay, I would love to maybe hear a little bit about that and um, what that's like f- for you, what, what the, how that's been for you. Uh, f- so help us understand maybe what it was and h- how, you, how you managed through that yourself. Yeah, I kind of glossed over it because I wanted to get into what, you know, what builds up to therapy. Um, But I have a loved one who is diagnosed with bipolar disorder and they had had two episodes back to back and they were managed. It was okay, but it just really like spiked my anxiety. So an episode for this person is extreme state of euphoria, um, manic, where they're not sleeping, they are very excitable, cre- uh, creative, um, just almost childlike is probably the best way to put it. Um, eyes are shifty, just very exaggerated, lots of energy, uh, can't be calmed down, can't really see reason. Um, they're lost, their reality is pretty lost, I would say. Um, and even asking my loved one about this, they don't really remember a lot. Um, if that kind of helps people. Um, and so that, that is bipolar one. And then after the mania, which can be a few days to a few weeks, depending on treatment, they hit the depression, the depression. So it used to be called manic depressive disorder, um, which is what I used to call it because it helps paint a picture. So then after the mania, it goes into depression, a depressive state where they, their energy is just, they're cra- they crash. Uh, they can't get out of bed. Sometimes they can be suicidal. Um, they need a lot of help functioning. And it can be kind of pretty scary. Um, they just need more extra help and care from their loved ones. So what an episode looks like here in the States and for my loved one was um, we take them to the crisis center, the hospital. They get evaluated and and, and they can either be admitted inpatient, which means they need to go to a hospital for a few days to a few weeks to get mat, like to get stabilized. So this would be medications, uh, around the clock therapists, or they can go home with a safety plan. So this person, the two back-to-back episodes had both, which was kind of interesting. So the first one, they had to be hospitalized. um, And that was actually harder because then I went to go visit them, of course, and they've come back to their their reality of what just happened, you know, that they they were psychotic for a few days and they don't know what happened. They don't know where they are. They're confused and they're having they're coming back down. So then we create a treatment plan as a family, as a team with a therapist to monitor the depressive state. And so that was the first one. And then the, the other one, they really just needed a med adjustment. Uh, we were able to find out that their medications were off. They're, and so we like got into a crisis appointment with their uh, prescriber, which was really nice, and really figured out how often they were taking their medications and realized it wasn't enough. Like they weren't taking the, a recommended dose. And this was causing them not to sleep. So if this person, my loved one's not sleeping, then they can go into that manic state. Mm. So that's really the key. So making sure that their medications keep them stable, 
getting enough sleep. So that was the second time was um, managing that, getting them, helping them figure out when would be a good time to take their medications, how we can do that as a family team. And so it's not just on one caregiver and then checking in on them from there. So, um, and I relate it to other people. Like if someone had a loved one that needed surgery or needed some, like to go to hospital, you know, that would cause anxiety because you're like, what's, what's aftercare look like? What's the, you know, what's this going to look like? But um, what really happened to me was that stuck in my mind of what they looked like when they're manic. And um, I, my ultimate fear was that they would be trapped there and wouldn't come back to me and wouldn't be the person I know and love. Um as in their healthy state, I guess is the best way to put that. Yeah. So you can, you can ask me any questions. I say loved one just to protect this person. Um, although they themselves are open about it and this, and you know, we're trying to decrease the stigma. I just think to like, just to protect them in case, you know, yeah, absolutely. they're still working. Yeah. They're still part of the community. So I just yeah. want them to know I protect their identity, but this person's very close to me and yeah, so it was hard. It sounds like uh, an extremely frightening experience, but my uh, first question would be, would you take them to the emergency room um, in the mania state or the depressed state? At what point would you make that call? Yes, in the mania state, because they are erratic um they might just take off in the day um and you don't know where they are <laughs> or this person was like prepared to jump off a high plate a high location and that mm -hmm. was intense you know you can't watch them around the clock so we had to take them in their manic state to get them to calm down um but if they're in their depressed state absolutely too like if if the mania only lasts a short period and you noticed someone was in a depressed state absolutely because that's also very scary they um might become suicidal is probably my biggest worry with the mm -hmm. depressed state and I, I, and I don't mean to put you on the spot here exactly i'm not i don't yeah, know you can how, ask anything you know, well, i don't know how much you know about bipolar but i'm curious as to um do you do we have any idea of what causes it or you know what the prognosis is for people with bipolar is it something that's just managed with medication or um can therapy help i don't i i, I know nothing about it really yeah no that's a great question so the reason is that i've been told and i have read is it's a, a chemical imbalance in the brain so medication is really like a, the best head-on because it it is that imbalance so medication can stabilize and then a best practice would be in combination with psychotherapy and um, someone to talk to to help them manage the feelings if they're starting to escalate or just to help them manage their medications especially if they were newly diagnosed and they're scared you know what, what does this mean for me and maybe family therapy i just think all the resources the better <laughs> um and then it is long term. It will stay with them the rest of their life. And so the best way is to just kind of keep an eye on that to manage it. And it's a pretty highly diagnosed what I read because I did have to kind of read up on a couple of things to refresh my mind, my memory. Um, but yeah, Cody can jump into if he knows anything else about it. Yeah, my, my, my 
question for you, Chanel, and, and maybe I can throw in some thoughts on this too, is I think that there is a giant misunderstanding of what bipolar is, at least in American society and, and maybe world society overall. But it just feels like anytime somebody might have some mood swings, maybe one minute they're happy and then next minute they're snapping at somebody or a lot of people will describe it as like, you're not quite sure what you're going to get with that person. Everybody tends to think of that as bipolar. Oh, they they must be bipolar. And um, it just doesn't really always really correlate. And I just want, wanted to know what your thoughts were, Chanel, on that being being a therapist and, and being so close to somebody who who has been diagnosed with bipolar. Mm-hmm. Uh, it kind of hurts a little when I hear the word thrown around because I'm like, hmm, that that's not quite right. <laughs> um, but I can't be mad at people either for lack of learning. Um, and that's not their fault. Like you're not taught that in school. You're not really taught about mental health uh, diagnoses or situations. So I do think that there probably are people with bipolar disorder that, um, you know, that could be a lot more have mild and have like pretty extreme mood swings. So bipolar two is like, um, hypomania and then depression. So it's also like the extreme mood swings. So it's very possible if it fits the diagnosis, like diagnostic criteria, then yes. Um, but using it loosely like that to categorize people who are moody, in a bad mood. I just don't think that's right. I think the reason humans have mood swings, especially today in our society, is just all there's a lot going on. You know, there's lots of information. There's lots of stresses in the world. Um, we're getting like hits of dopamine when we use our phones. We don't have the best nutrition. Like, I just think there's a lot of reasons for mood swings. So I, I just think they're separate. Mm-hmm. But I do think if someone is feeling off, and like their moods are lasting or they're just painful. Like, uh, you know, like they just can't get past it. Or I think just go talk to someone. Maybe you do have bipolar disorder or maybe you have de- um, depression and it's coming off as mood swings or anxiety. You know, like me, I my anxiety presented as brain fog and lack of sleep. So, yeah, I, that's probably not the, quite the right answer. It's I, I it's complicated. Yeah, I I have a question and and I don't know how to formulate this, or maybe it's a thought rather than a question. But as we aim to open up conversations around mental health and various disorders, if you want to, if you want to call them that, um, it creates a lot of grey areas. And then also these words come into the sort of um, day to day language, don't they? Like you know, I, I hear my daughter say. Um, yeah, something will happen. Like I don't know, she'll spill a cup of tea on the floor and say she's traumatized by it, or or something. <laughs> and mm-hmm. you, and you hear words coming in into the language, and you know, and part of that is because people are opening up about conversations. But then the worry is for me is that, and I'm thinking of young people here, is that they automatically assume that they've got some sort of mental health disorder. Mm-hmm. You know, for example, a teenager who's having a few mood swings, and then they might start rolling out that, or somebody might refer to them as being bipolar or manic or you know traumatized or whatever it is. So, uh, it's not really a question; it's just a thought about how how these things are going to pan out. Yeah, I appreciate it. No, you're exactly right. I, another word one I hear a lot is triggered. Oh, 
I'm triggered by that. And that is a term I didn't even hear until I was in college for therapy. So there's two sides to that. I think that it's good. It's good to have words and language to identify how we're feeling and to tell, you know, but sometimes we just don't have the right words or we don't know where to look or to find those. So that's like a perfect example, like a teenager throwing around a word. They might just not know which one is quite accurate for Mm. what they're actually feeling. And so language can be such a huge tool. I know you both have mentioned Brene Brown on this podcast. I highly recommend Atlas of the Heart. She dives into language um, and how we actually don't really know the right words to use for our emotions. And she teaches people. Maybe you both read it, but I loved it. She also has like a seminar on Hulu of going through each one. So that's kind of what I refer to pe- like people if they're not quite sure how they're feeling or what to use, what words to use. That's a really good starting point. Yeah, that's a great, great one. Um, the the one that you just mentioned, the Brené Brown, is actually, you can get it as an audible book, the uh, lecture she does. It's over a number of days, I believe. Mm-hmm. And um, I listened to that. I listened to it a long time ago. It must have been, I don't know, five or six years ago. And I listened to the majority of it on a drive back from... Uh, Scotland I was working up there and and when I came home I told my wife I said I've listened to this audio book and it, it's changed my life and I was like so good it's absolutely brilliant and she listened to it and in our household now if, if things start getting a little rough um Sonia will quite often say to me I'm, I'm going to go and listen to a bit of Brené <laughs> yeah. <laughs> she's and like she a knows, yeah she's yeah and she knows the various little chapters and little bits to go to go and listen to and it's it's really helpful. So that's uh, I think we, we, we can all recommend that to our listeners, can't we? Mm-hmm. Chanel, before we move too far off of off of this, I just wanted to just touch base. How how are things with your loved one and, and how are things with you now, uh, now that you're kind of on the, maybe the end of, outside of the hospitalization phase? How are things for you and them? Mm-hmm. Good. Things are really good. Um, they haven't had an episode for a while now. And we as a family have a really good plan um so like a regular check-in phone calls how are you um just letting them know we're here and and i think that helps that we all work together so it's not just on one person and um this person my loved one also will tell us um if something's not going well as recently as like this summer is a good example. They were going through a difficult time and they were like, you know, I, it's been a few nights since I slept. And so we're all a little on alert, right? Like, okay, a few nights can turn into something bigger. So what does that mean? Let's, let's all get together and chat, you know, and just kind of stay on top of it. Um, and you know, one thing I think that was really interesting is one of the times we found out the medication, they were taking a different time because it hurt their stomach. And so in talking with their prescriber, we found out they could take like a gel pill instead. Oh, problem solved. So little things like that um, and just all communicating, being informed, like, and luckily this person's awesome. They let us all go as a family to the appointment so we can all work together to check in and be there for each other. And, and they do really good to take care of themselves too, which helps. Um, they love exercise. They love staying busy, staying with, you know, getting out with friends. And so that's really nice to, I know they're doing well when I see them 
out and about, but they, they are honest, which I appreciate. And they're willing to take their medications. That's a big one. Um, sometimes people will feel good and they will think they don't need their medications. And that's really hard because they're, they're right. You know, when you start feeling better, you don't really want to keep maintaining the same routine. It feels really like a lot. Um, but I, I, that's like really pertinent to my loved one is like just maintaining routine and the medication just to stabilize them. Yeah. I love the, I love the hearing about the, the support network that you've got, like everybody's surrounding this person and looking out for them. And mm-hmm. it's, uh, it's very heartening to hear that. It's really nice. Yeah. That yeah. is one thing I've heard about. I read about in all the different types of health that I've read is having a support system, even like longevity, having a support yeah. um, can really help just in general. So that's kind of where I start like, okay, well, you know, what's your support network like and making mm. sure mine is good too. I hear this is key for uh, living a long life. Um, again, I'm going to call out all men here. Um, <laughs> you're not sociable. If you don't have friends and go and do things with other people, then it, it will, you have higher blood pressure, um, a higher chance of metabolic disease. And there's lots of studies that, you know, it's not just making it up. It's actually true. And, and the end result is that you're, uh, gonna die a lot sooner so if you want to live long you actually have to socialize which is a bit, bit of a shocker mm-hmm. <laughs> and i don't know why i'm in struggle i don't know if it's like just part of that narrative of like you know tough it up you get you know like um yeah, or it's just not normalized to chat yeah. about those things as your kids so it just doesn't follow you into adulthood i don't know i don't like chatting for me i i um i don't know whether this is other men but i quite just what's happened to me is I've got family and they take up a lot of my time I love being with them and I just don't have a real drive to go out and socialize even though I know it's good for me um but it is something that I've made made the effort to do and and when I do it I actually I do enjoy it but so it's a little bit of laziness on on my part I guess and then a few years back, again, my, my wife was encouraging me to, she told me I needed to go out of the house and get away, <laughs> go and do something else. And it, and it was good. And I joined a cycling club and, and go mountain biking with some guys. Um, I mean, that's taken a back seat recently just for a number of other reasons, but um, it is good to do. And again i suppose it's a bit like the exercise thing in a way you know it's good for you and you get some enjoyment out of it but then if you stop doing it you can quickly um just get lazy about it and even though you know it's a bad thing so mm-hmm. yeah we need to keep getting out of there i think it's a societal thing um to your point you know it's like toughen up uh be strong i think that i think that that's just I, mean, I think that's how a lot of people are raised, but boys in particular, I think that that's kind of, um, in society, we generally look at things like the people who are the most resilient are the ones who don't need other people or other things to help them survive. And I think that that's backwards thinking, unfortunately, but somehow along the, along the lines that that's become the gold standard, that I'm more resilient, the less support I need. Um, and I, I think maybe it's starting to slowly change, but um, but that's a long road to 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 change things, for mm-hmm. sure. 
I think as well, for, we, we live in a sort of isolated times in a way, don't we, where, you know, you can go through life day to day and you don't actually have to speak to anybody. You can communicate on email or WhatsApp. A lot of us are in jobs, even that you don't, you know, like the, I do talk to people in my job. I could probably get away with doing it via email and, you know, mm-hmm. that kind of so yeah, it just depends on your life situation, doesn't it? But it is a, uh, it is good to get out and talk to people. And I think, I don't know, for me, it always makes me feel much more alive if I'm interacting with people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, Chanel, um, I didn't necessarily prep you for this, but I'd like to ask you a few rapid fire questions to to wrap this up a little bit. Are you, are you okay with that? Let's do it. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> All right. Let's see how this goes. So, all right. So, um, question number one, there's five questions here. So question number one, name one of your favorite accomplishments and one current challenge that you're going through in life right now. Mm. Oh, a couple of great accomplishments. That's hard. Um, this this could take you an hour actually to answer this. (laughs) I was really proud of myself when I graduated college. That was a big deal. Um, I, you know, it was hard. <laughs> that was a lot of work. And then of course yeah. the other one is my, my children, but I don't know if that's an, an accomplishment. Um, that's just something I'm really grateful that was added into my life. And then oh, yeah. that's a great answer. A great answer. Something that I struggle with right now or in the past? Right now, current challenge. Oh, current challenge. Um, definitely like the day-to-day grind of life. Honestly, mm. like if if there's not a big adventure or something coming up, I kind of feel stuck. I just sometimes really, really get stuck in my head of ugh, the routine of just the mundane day-to-day life. And so, um, yeah. Need, need something to look forward to. Mm-hmm. Well, we, we didn't talk about, this is not rapid fire because now I'm going to go off on a tangent. So <laughs> <laughs> uh, we didn't talk about this, uh, but um, Chanel's a big traveler as well. So I'm, I'm sure that those trips are what usually keeps you going, I imagine. Yes. All right, number two. Um, you've talked a lot about this, but favorite self-care activity? Ooh, uh, definitely hiking. Uh, getting out there in the mountains, taking in the beauty of our awesome state of Utah. Because how lucky are we that we have mountains right away, right over there around the corner? So when the seasons change, it's a little harder. I go snowshoeing. I just switch it up. I put on my my snow clothes and I get my snowshoes and. I still do it. So definitely getting out in the mountains. That's cool. Do you ever do uh, backpacking and uh, like wild camping or any of that stuff? Oh, yeah, for sure. I backpacked to yeah. like Havasu Falls. Super fun. Um, we backpack here in Utah, I backpacked in Greece. So for sure. Wow. wow. Yeah. It's intense. I feel really tough and cool when I do that. Um, <laughs> got all my gear on me. You know, I always bring a bag of M&Ms to treat myself when I get there. Yeah. <laughs> Well, that's well, cool. we'll, have to, uh, we'll have to have a, a geek out on um, sleeping mats at some point and yes, backpacking stuff. Yeah, yeah cool. some backpacking stuff. I've got like a list of the best foods and stuff to recommend to you. <laughs> All right, number three. Uh, what is something that you have learned about yourself recently? Mm-hmm. Recently, that's a hard one. Um. Yeah, that's a really hard one. I feel like that's like hard to always constantly evolving. Um, let's see. Yeah, that's a hard one. Next question, then I'll I'll think about that one. You got it. You got it. Um, 
All right, you've mentioned one already, so it's okay if you go back to to that again. Um, but maybe a favorite mental health resource, such as a book or a podcast or certain people you like, uh, something that you would want to share with other people. Yes, I already mentioned Ten Percent Happier. Love it, and I could not let time go on without ha- like talking about Tara Brock. She's amazing. I love her voice. I love her meditations. I love the way she talks about relationships with people. 100% love her. And then music. If you mm. really just need a mood change, throw on some music. It can alter you to a different place, moment, feeling. Just really good. It's uh, just Tara Brock. Does she have a podcast? Yes, she's amazing. She does like little seminars and then she also has meditations. Oh, cool. I'll have to check now. Check she's her out. Amazing. <laughs> That's great. All right. Uh, last rapid fire question. Uh, another one that will put you on the spot. What is your spirit animal and why? Oh, I've been asked this and I would love to say like a mountain lion. Um, just, you know, kind of fierce. Love to be outdoors. But sometimes I'm a house cat and I just am like moody and want to be indoors and not leave the house. So I kind of alternate between those two depending on my mood. <laughs> That's good. Yeah, have have two different ones. I like that. That's good. You, yeah, I feel like we all have multiple moods, so it really depends on the day. Yeah, I love. I, it. Um, I asked my youngest son because um, I knew that Cody was going to ask this question. I asked him what my spirit animal was, and he <laughs> said uh, an old Labrador. <laughs> <laughs> That's cute. <laughs> I thought, yeah, I'll take that. People love dogs. That's a compliment. <laughs> Oh, yeah. I, I love that he got the old part in there. Yeah, he <laughs> I had to add old. Yeah. I'm slightly <laughs> offended at first, and then after thinking about it for a couple of minutes, I was like, yeah, that's fair enough. Yeah. <laughs> that's great. I can handle that. Well, Chanel, is there anything else uh, that you feel like that you want to say or anything that we haven't covered that, that you'd like to share before we end? Yeah, I just, I want to thank you both for doing this. I think it's really wonderful to have a platform for therapists, people who've been to therapy to come check in and listen to something different and important to our society, just trying to break down the stigma. And then I just want to tell people, you know, you're worth it. You're worth making a therapy appointment. You're worth going to a group. You're worth, you know, taking time to find self-care practices that you love, you know, looking at it as like a fun adventure journey instead of, oh, like something I have to do, like brush my teeth, self-care. No, it should be fun, um, in my opinion. So that's probably what I would want to leave people with. And there is hope, you know, if, you you know, some day-to-day, maybe you're having a really rough day, you feel like you're alone or like you're not going to get through it. I would just hope that you find a way to see that, you know, you can. There's a way through, there's a way through the dark times and there's people out there for you that want to hear you and that are there for you. So that's probably what I would say. Yeah, that's great. It's been really good. Thank you for coming on. I, uh, you never know how these conversations are going to go. And it's just been really enlightening and in- inspiring. Like particularly, you, you just have a really mindful attitude towards everything, which I, I'm going to try and take some of that on board. Thank you. I really enjoyed this chat and listening to your podcast. I told Cody, I actually relate more to you, Rich. Like when you're talking about be, like being kind of gloomy and moody, um, I can tend to toward, like lean towards that way. Like when the weather changed, I was super moody. So I try really hard to not be, but I think it's okay too. 
It's funny because you don't come across like that at all. And I I worry sometimes that I'm being a bit too gloomy about everything. But <laughs> I, I then I just think, well, authenticity. I just, yeah. You got to be yourself. <laughs> just own it. Just own it. Be that, be that house cat. Yeah. People aren't tuning in to, to hear me being, yeah, all positive about things. So. Yeah. I, re- I recommend Dan Harris on 10% Happier. He identifies as like a, a critic, like a cynic that's yeah. trying to oh, okay. practice mindfulness right, and he's like i don't know if i buy into all this crap but i'm trying <laughs> so i love uh, it that, yeah that's it that's it um not knowing whether you buy into it but sort of trying anyway isn't it 